I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, and I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Good job, Sandy, with all those names. That was intimidating. So, church, uh, lots been going on. If uh, we Wednesday night we had a very important informational meeting uh, concerning the offer that is before us as far as these current facilities and our plans going forward. At, uh, that the session is recommending our Board of Elders that we accept so that we can uh, build a new sanctuary and new buildings and that are ministry specific. If you missed that presentation, we did record it. If you email uh, info at covenantpalmbay.org, info at covenantpalmbay.org, we will give you the link so you can watch that incredibly exciting, but a little long. Uh, presentation uh, and get informed and get up to date with everything that's going on. If, remember, if you regularly worship with us, those of you who've been with us and you've been worshiping, we, we want you to know what's going on in the life of our church. Just email that and we'll send you the, the link for that. So, hey, one year ago, we started going through the book of Romans and we finished today. Yeah, amen. That's good. That's worth applauding over. That's good. And I uh, love going through this book. And, uh, you know, at the end of this book, it's a little different, right? I mean, you see all these greetings and these names and everything else. It's, um, and it's a reminder to us of something that I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Brian referred to it last week. 
that everything in the Bible is not prescriptive. Uh, everything that is in the Bible isn't meant for us to do it exactly like it was being done, for example, in the early church. In this church here in Rome, we know that from the descriptions that there were at least, they were organized into at least three to five house churches. This doesn't mean that Paul is telling all churches for the centuries that you must meet together in house churches and that what we're doing this morning is improper. Some things are simply just descriptive of how they did church and, and what body life was like and everything else in the first century. But in those descriptive passages, you often find real gems, truths and principles that transcend the centuries from which we can draw application. So even though we may not do it exactly the way the first century did something, the principle transcends time and the way we apply it into our cultural context and into our day and age has validity. And that's what we have here in these final words from Paul. We find some real nuggets that give us a description of an effective church. And so read this with me, kind of an overarching truth for the entire chapter. Um, you know, I've only done the whole chapter, I think, one other time in this series. We've normally broken the chapters down, in, but, but I felt like this final chapter we would do in one. But there's one overarching truth. Read it out loud with me as we take it away this morning. An effective church is unified through its allegiance and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. An effective church is unified through its allegiance and commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This description that we have of this chapter, it in what Paul tells us, it transcends the cultures and the centuries. So as it, as it describes for us the church in the first century, it's just as true and applicable for the church of the 21st century. So this morning, as a 21st century church, let's learn from the first century church. Let's, let's take some principles and let's see in these final words from what Paul's perspective may, is necessary to make an effective church. The very first thing we see in the first 16 verses is an effective church is a diverse congregation that is unified in their service to Christ and love for one another. Listen, you can easily see the diversity that was in this congregation. The names of the people and what we know about certain ones of these individuals, their history, as some of the titles that Paul uses or the descriptive words that Paul uses give us insight into the makeup of this first century church. Now, listen, some general data here, right? In the first 16 verses, Paul greets 24 people by name, and, and, and I think that's right because I counted it like 10 times in order to get agreement on how many names are you. But I think there's 24 people by name. And then he refers to a few moms, you know, like Paxson's mom and, you know, John's mom, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so some other people by secondary references um, that were in this Roman church. And nine of these people had been in Corinth with him at some time or another. Some had been in Ephesus. And, and so it's interesting because you sit here and you think, how does Paul know all these people? He's never been to the church at Rome, right? And he's saying, greet this person and that person and this person. It gives you insight that in some way or another, the first century had Facebook. 
work, right? They, they, they were able to find out people that were in other churches and establish relationships with them, maybe through his travels in other churches and through areas. He'd bump into somebody, maybe a businessman, a merchant, and find out that they were from the church in Rome. And so these relationships were established. He sends this letter by a woman whose name is Phoebe. So he's commending Phoebe to them, the very first verse, when he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Checker, whatever. Um, That's a church, Cindy did a much better job than I just did, right? This is a church near the, the city of Corinth, and she is a member of this church. And, and, and actually, we learned something about the church just from the use of her name that this church and the churches in general would have diversity in their economic abilities. Phoebe is described as a patron of Paul. This meant she was rich, okay? That's what it means. She was wealthy um, in some way, either through an inheritance or her business. Um, And I think it was probably from a business because uh, the city that she was from was a major trade hub. And now she's come to Rome and it's logical that why would you leave Corinth and come to Rome? It's because of business. And she is, Paul describes her as a patron. This means that she financially underwrit his ministry. She was a donor and she was wealthy. And you see this also in this church, members of this church, Priscilla and Aquila. These two are people that we've read about in other places of the New Testament. They clearly had some financial means because they were able to flee Rome when Claudius expelled the Jews, uh, reestablish their life in Corinth where Paul met them, and then later go with Paul to Ephesus and do ministry in Ephesus, and now they're back in Rome. You didn't travel like that in the ancient world unless you had financial means because of of the expense involved. So this was a diverse church in their economic ability. They were a diverse church in their race. Now, broad categories, they're Gentile and Jews. We know there's Jews in this church because of some references. For example, verse 13, a really interesting reference to a man by the name of Rufus. I've always liked that name. If I ever have another son, I think I might use it. Rufus, right? You know, in the Gospel of Mark, Mark writes the gospel of, uh, and it's really Peter's account of Jesus's ministry. And that letter was specifically sent to this same church. The gospel of Mark was written for the members of the church in Rome. And it's interesting when Mark tells the story of Jesus's crucifixion, you may remember this, when Jesus is on the, the road to Golgotha and he's carrying the cross, he's so weak that he stumbles and he can't carry it. So what did the Roman centurions do? They grab a guy out of the crowd and make him carry Jesus' cross. Well, in Mark's account, he says something very interesting. He says, the man that the centurions grabbed, his name was Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Remember, he's writing to the Roman church. And why would you say the father of Alexander and Rufus unless that original audience knew Alexander and Rufus, and Paul mentions Rufus. So what a cool aspect that, and providentially, here's a a Jewish man attending the high festival, the Passover in Jerusalem. He's plucked out of the crowd. He becomes a part of the story of Jesus and his crucifixion. And we find that a family of faith is established. And now Paul is greeting them in this, early, in this letter to the church at Rome. They're diverse in race. They're devo- diverse in social standing. You have people who are free 
freed men, probably many uh, who had been slaves, who were now free, but you also have existing slaves in this church. Verse 10 says, greet Apollos, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Literally, greet those who are part of the household of Aristobulus. Who is Aristobulus? He wasn't a member of this church. He was the grandson of Herod the Great and a close friend to Emperor uh, Claudius. And then he says in the next verse, greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those of the Lord who belong to the household or the family of Narcissus. Narcissus was a historical figure in Rome. He was a very rich and powerful freedman. He had been a slave. He earned his freedom. He became extremely wealthy and an influential advisor to, the Caesar, to Caesar. And so when Paul says, greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus, he's, he's being literal. They belong to Aristobulus. They belong to Narcissus, these people. They're slaves in this household. But in these imperial households, these households of the aristocracy, the movers and shakers of the empire, Christ had established his presence within these slaves and servants. And one of the beautiful histories of the Roman church is that from these slaves and servants, they will ultimately win their masters to Christ, many of them. And you see Christianity spreading among all the strata of the Roman Empire. So they're diverse in their race, their economic abilities, their social standing. They're diverse in their gender. Of the 24 names Paul mentions, 10 of them are women. Now, Paul, in modern society and theology and church circles, gets a bad rap. He's called a misogynist because of what he says about the roles of men and women and the roles that are appropriate for women in, within the church and are not appropriate. And so in our modern society, because he says something that's not popular, he's canceled. But Paul is not a misogynist. In fact, he's actually having some fun with uh, and, and, and expressing affection towards several of these women and the, and the way they have blessed his ministry. You, you have the names Trophina and Trophosa. I'm not naming any daughters that, okay? But Trophina and Trophosa were twins. That's, what, that's why the names are so similar. And they would give those names. To, and here's the neat thing about the names in these, this list. There's a meaning oftentimes behind the names. A slave would be renamed by the master and the name bore onto their character or their physical abilities. And so Trophina and Trophosa mean dainty or petite, right? So you have these two sisters who are dainty and petite. And Paul says, yeah, but they're hard workers, you know? Reminds me of that scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where the guy says, hey, she may be tiny, but she's strong, right? And, and that's what he's getting at here, that they might be dainty and petite, but they are fierce laborers for the Lord. And he's commending these women. And of course, I mentioned a few moments ago that they're diverse in their organization. They have at least three to five house churches and they have established leaders like Priscilla and Aquila who had been with Paul in Corinth and Ephesus, but they have others. In verse seven, greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives or my, my Jewish kinsmen is what it means, who had been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles and they were in Christ before I was. Now immediately that verse captures attention too. It's like, are we supposed to have apostles today? Remember, descriptive or prescriptive? 
Okay, this is the important concepts here. And you'll notice in the, the word here, it's, it's a little a apostles. And that's important because we got to understand that the word apostolos, the Greek word apostolos, doesn't always refer to one of the 12, one of the big A apostles. That word apostolos means sent, those who are sent out. So in our language today, if I were writing a letter, I might greet Ben and Alana Harris and commend them for their service in the Lord. Because Ben and Alana Harris were sent out by our church as church planters. Our modern terminology for this, what Paul is getting at here, was that Adronicus and Junius were church planters. They were missionaries who had been sent out like Barnabas from a church to spread the gospel, to plant churches in areas that did not have churches. So this church was diverse. It had diverse leadership. It had diverse workers. It had diverse races and economic statuses. But the thing that we should pull away from this is that this passage just gives us a beautiful picture of the unity that can exist in a church when we are in Jesus Christ. Regardless of our backgrounds and all the things that distinguish us, there's a beautiful unity that is possible when we're in Christ. You know, back in the 1760s, there was a Baptist pastor by the name of John Fawcett, and he ministered in the countryside of England, and, and he was known for just loving this rural congregation. He, his fame for his love for his congregation and his ability to preach and teach the Word of God spread throughout England. And so uh, one, one day he got an invitation to take over the pastorate of a very uh, large, influential Baptist church in London, and he accepted it, preached his final message to that rural church. They helped him pack, he and his wife pack all their belongings into their wagon. And, and as they were preparing to leave, they got up on the wagon and the church began to pray and they just began to weep and weep and weep and cry and wail. And this church was so sad to lose the faucets and their church. And it was so impacting that Mrs. Fawcett turned to her husband and said, we can't do this. We cannot go to London. And he agreed, and they got down off the wagon, and the church helped them unpack their stuff, and he wrote a letter to this big influential church and said, thank you, I can't come. And he spent the last 40 years of his life ministering in that community and in that rural area to this church. And so what was interesting, let me get past this, is he wrote a poem. That, that moment was so impacting upon him personally, he wrote a poem that they then turned into a hymn, a hymn that many of us have sung through the years. Blessed be the tie, I'm not gonna sing it for you so you can relax. <laughs> Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts, and our cares. We share each other's woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. Something happens. Sharing in the person and the work of Christ binds us together in a very personal way. It encourages us to support one another. It encourages us, like we see in these people, to share a common mission 
How does Paul most often describe these people? They are hard workers. They are supporters. They are fellow laborers for the cause of Jesus Christ. It's so vital that everyone in a church is engaged in making every uh, effort possible to see the mission of bringing gospel restoration to this broken world, that everyone be involved in this, regardless of our background. This kind of unity that is comes through Christ. It also encourages us to love and appreciate one another. You know, uh, imagine just for a moment, stop and think about it, what it must have felt like for these people, these 24 people in the church at Rome, plus a few moms and others, to be sitting in a, in a worship service in their little house church and, the, and the, the letter from Paul is read and all of a sudden you hear coming out of the speaker's mouth from the pen of Paul your name and the commendations that the apostle Paul gives for, to you for the way you have used your gifts to serve the body of Christ and to be on mission. You can imagine how that would make people feel and the way that even strengthens those ties more. You know, Wednesday night we talked about building a new sanctuary on the 10 acres south of us. And, and listen, uh, we don't know what that place is gonna look like. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that stage and we'll take inputs and, and uh, we'll consider everything and we'll come up with a good design. But you know, if there's uh, two overarching principles that we want in this new worship space, we want it to foster a sense of the transcendence of God. In other words, we have a place where we can come together and we can be still and know that he is God. That we can have a sanctuary away from all the difficulties, all the struggles that we have throughout the week. And we can come together for a period of time and we can worship our God who is holy and high and lifted up and sovereign over everything that took place to us over that past week. Right? But you know what else? There's a second thing. Not only do we want it to be transcendent, we also want it to foster a spirit of the eminence of our God. Now, when I say eminence, I'm not I-M-M-I-N, it's I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E, for those of you who take notes. The Bible tells us that Jesus, God, took on flesh, and what did he do? He walked among us. He, he could be experienced and there was a closeness that God is with us. He's not distant. He's not so holy and high and lifted up that he doesn't interact with us. And so we want a sanctuary where the eminence of our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that, yes, he's high and lifted up, but he's also with us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And, and when we take the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus is is with us and through the Spirit, He's feeding us and strengthening us and empowering us to live a life that brings glory to Him. So certainly when we gather together, we want to glorify this holy, transcendent God, but we also want to worship Him in a different way. 
by encouraging one another and loving one another and expressing our appreciation for one another and for bearing one another's burdens when we come together and commending one another when we see God at work in a person's life, when we tangibly express our love and our appreciation and our commendation and our concern and our support for one another when we gather together in worship, that is just as much the worship of God as it is when we sing glorious songs to His majesty. In other words, God loves it when we love and appreciate and encourage one another because we're unified in Jesus Christ. There's some rich nuggets in this list of names, right? Can't pronounce them all, (laughs) but we can clearly see that an effective congregation is a diverse congregation that's unified in their service to Christ and their love for one another. Secondly, we see that effective churches face continual danger from within and from without. In verses 17 to 20, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery deceive the hearts of the naive. Your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent, as to what is evil. For the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Paul was deeply concerned with the churches and their unity and the threat that existed to the church through divisions and fractures in that unity. He understands that those divisions will often arise from within the church or come from outside the church. To the the elders and the leaders of the church at Ephesus, as he is departing in Acts chapter 20, he says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Listen, we've experienced this. As a church that's more than 40 years old over the decades, people would latch on to a false doctrine, a false teaching that was maybe in the world at large, and they would begin to propagate it within our church. And the elders of our church, doing the work of overseers of the church, rightly so, intervened and tried to to guide that person and bring them to an understanding of what is true and scriptural. And if they persist in that heresy, they, they cannot stay in this body because of how it fractures the unity of the body. Heretical doctrines are a threat. But more than that, I would say that what arises within a church is oftentimes simply legalism or works sanctification that brings a spirit of bondage into a church and it destroys the unity of a church one of the things I'm most concerned with right now, and, and I'm on pastoral forums and pastors are talking about this, is we see it happening in our churches and we get these videos through messaging apps from people in our churches 
Conspiracy theories, church, will divide and destroy the unity and the witness of a church. I'm not going to get off on this and get onto a soapbox. Instead, I'm just going to simply ask you a question and leave it with you to contemplate this morning. I wrote it out so that I wouldn't be snarky. I'm sorry, child. I I don't really try to be snarky. (laughs) Here's the question. When you adopt fringe beliefs from the internet and you propagate this to others through likes and videos and comments, how do you expect unbelievers to then take you seriously when you speak of your faith? Church, be on guard for the nutty conspiracies that are just sucking in And it seems to be happening in churches that are conservative theologically, and it sucks in people who tend to be more conservative, and they're far right, and they're not valid at all. They're just conspiracy theories, and it hurts our witness with the unbelievers of this world. And certainly one of the biggest threats that can happen is that when a special interest group or a good thing in a church becomes the main thing, When that happens, a church's unity can be destroyed. So for example, there can be a sub-theme in the Bible like prophecy and a group of people in the church become so interested in prophecy and so obsessed with prophecy and what's happening in our world and what does this, that it ends up creating divisions in the church because other people don't see it the same way. And and this group says, how can you not see it? It's obvious to everyone. And it becomes divisive. So even the Bible itself and sub-themes within the Bible can end up creating division within a church, political action and activities within a church. Certainly church ministries or programs that have people's loyalty can become so sacred to those people that it ends up creating division and ruins the unity in a church because the main thing is not kept the main thing. So within the church, there are dangers. And then from without the church, there are clearly dangers. He talks about Satan. Now, Satan's going to be crushed one day, but he is real. He's alive. The apostle Paul tells us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the powers, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places." Satan will always attack a church that is on mission for Jesus Christ. And he will leave alone a church that has denied the truth of Jesus Christ and the word of God. He's not going to mess with people who deny Christ and the power of the gospel. They're no threat. (laughs) But if we as a church stand firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to be attacked by Satan. How does he do it? Sin. Sin, he tempts us as individuals to sin. That can create discord and disunity. This is why it's so important for us as a church to live authentically with one another where we're comfortable confessing our struggles and our sins with one another so that it does not give an entryway to the devil to create division in a church. He tempts us with sin. But I tell you, one of his best strategies that I've seen through time in God's house is that he distracts us from the mission. 
And he always does it with good things. He always does it by encouraging us to be overly inward focused rather than have our focus on the needs of the lost and the broken in a community, forgetting that we are to do exactly what Jonathan taught our children this morning, that we are here to teach and proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of Jesus, and to teach them to obey all things. That is why we're here. We are not here to create a country club where we're all comfortable and we get our backs scratched and, you know, it's us four and no more. That's not why we're here. Certainly a church needs to take care of the flock. That's why we have elders and deacons. But when that becomes the main thing of a church, that church has fallen prey to one of Satan's biggest strategies. So an effective church is a diverse congregation that's unified in their service to Christ and their love for one another. Effective churches face continual danger both from within and from without. And finally, in the last few verses of this chapter, Paul encourages us to glorify God. And he does this by one final time putting center stage, putting our attention on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he exhorts us to understand that effective churches are centered on the person, the power, and the proclamation of the gospel. He says in verse 25, now to him who's able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. In these verses, as we close out this year-long study of the book of Romans, and we soon take up books like Habakkuk. How's that for a difference, right? In the Old Testament. As we close this out, I want us to be reminded of, of three things concerning the gospel that Paul points out here. First, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Some of you may have only joined us today. This may be your first service or second service. I want you to understand that this book, in the book of Romans, is, is divided into major themes. And, and the first theme in chapters one to three is all about sin. How we are born into this world totally corrupted by sin. All of us Sin falls short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. It goes on to say, we do not do one good thing that impresses God. We're incapable of doing it. This is the way we're born. In other words, we are born in deep, deep trouble, and there is no hope for deliverance within ourselves. Not one bit of hope. But then, halfway through chapter 3, all the way through chapter five, the second major theme comes out, salvation. Yes, we are born dead in sin and capable of pleasing God, but God is a God of grace. Jonathan talked about grace to the children a few moments ago. God is a God of grace. 
He sent Jesus to take on flesh who perfectly obeyed the law, chapter four, right? He lived the life we're to live. And then God demonstrated his love toward us. And that even though we were sinners and enemies at war with him, God demonstrated how much he loves us by decreeing that Jesus would live the life that we were to live and then die the death that our sins deserve. And through the shed blood of Jesus, we can know our God and be reconciled to him. The wages of our sin may be death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you've come here this morning looking for answers, here's the answer, Jesus. Jesus. Don't care what you're struggling with. I mean, I do care, but that's a rhetorical device. You know? <laughs> Whatever you may be struggling with, you may be a Christian or a non-Christian, the answer's always the same. It's Jesus, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what the gospel is, it's the good news of Jesus. Secondly, the gospel is the power of God for both our salvation and our sanctification. You know, Paul uses words in the closing of this book that he used in the opening of this book. So for example, Romans chapter one, verse five, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. That phrase he pulls again in the closing verses, the obedience of faith. In Romans chapter one, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You may say, Jerry, the word power isn't in these closing verses, but it is. When he says in verse 25, now to him who is able, that word who is able is, is actually dynamo, it's a dynamite, it's dynamo, the power, him who is, has the power to establish you, to strengthen you, to firmly establish you according to the gospel. And what is the result of this? He says to bring about in verse 27, the obedience of faith. The third great theme of the book of Romans is from chapter six to eight, and it all deals with about sanctification. People who've now believed in Christ, they are saved through the gospel, but we are not then sanctified through our works. We are saved by grace, but we are sanctified by grace. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Church, we're made holy. We come to defeat sin, not through our own effort, not through what we do. We are sanctified and made holy from sin because of what Jesus has done. We're saved by grace through faith. We're sanctified by grace through faith. The gospel is that powerful, that it can rescue us from sin for eternity, and it can deliver us from the power of sin Monday through Sunday as we live life here on earth. One final aspect God has an eternal sovereign plan that includes us proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to our broken world. The fourth and fifth sections of Romans were all about God's sovereignty. How every one of us have, who know Christ have come to Christ, not because of our goodness, because we figured it out and others haven't. We have come to know Christ because God, before the foundations of the world, set us aside 
And then he poured his grace out upon our lives. He gave us a new heart and we came to Christ because of God being sovereign over our salvation. We come to him because he decreed it. It is part of his eternal plan. It says in verse 26, the the eternal plan of God cannot be thwarted. It cannot be defeated. And the eternal plan of God includes you and me proclaiming the gospel so that those who God has called out before the universe ever began will hear that good news and respond because God has done it as a work of grace in their life. We are his instruments. What a place of honor to be his instruments that he works through to carry out his divine eternal plan. How do we respond to this grace? These early Christians, they were all in. (laughs) Their life belonged to their master, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do we respond as a church? All in. It's about Jesus and his glory, not our kingdom but his kingdom. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to study the book of Romans, to dig into its depths and the riches that are contained therein. Uh, We could have been in this book for two more years, but I don't know if these poor people could have handled that. (laughs) But we thank you that we've been able to study it and just luxuriate in the truth that's in it. Father, we don't want this just to be head knowledge, We don't want to be better educated Christians. Father, we want to be transformed by the truth and the grace and the knowledge of you that has come through this book. Would you do that work in our church? Would you make us an effective church that is unified around the person and the mission of Jesus Christ that keeps the main thing the main thing that carries forward the glory of your name into Palm Bay and Brevard County and around the world. Make us that kind of effective church, Lord Jesus. It will only happen through your grace, through your power working in us. So we ask that you would do this for your glory, for the good of the people that we love in this area, I pray. Amen. Church, would you stand?